morning, everyone. Finally, we are ready to go. We uh, have had some significant issues with the video projection system, which is on its last legs. We on? How is that? Is that better? I was just saying we've had some significant issues over the past two months with the video system, and it's getting replaced. I saw new screens in the office. Anyway, hopefully that'll be fixed in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to stand and sing. But, but what, before we do that, let me read to you Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Let's stand and sing.
I can just say my very warm welcome to everyone this morning. Kendra, we need the sound up a bit. How is that? Is that better? A bit more? Let me say a good morning again. Great to see you all. And if you're watching online, very welcome to have you here online. A um, couple of things. Today we are celebrating the Lord's Supper and hopefully when you came in this morning you would have got a little communion pack. If you didn't get one, uh, just put your hand up and Ken can get one round to you if you haven't got a communion pack or if you want to go to the back. There's a couple down the front here, Ken. Um, that would be great. Um, and also, if you are new with us, we'd love to connect with you. And in your seats underneath in front of you, there's a little connect card to scan a QR code and that'll take us to our website. And we would love you to connect by digital means. Uh, we're very familiar with that these days. And let us know you're here. We'd love to be in touch with you. Uh, we're going to start now having sung and praised God by declaring our faith together as God's people in the words of the Apostles' Creed. So let me invite you to stand and let us to, uh, together declare what it is that we believe. What do we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried, ascended to the dead. On the third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, please be seated and we're now going to spend some time praying. So please join with me as we pray. Dear Lord in heaven, we lean on your goodness and mercy this day. As our creator and sustainer of not just ourselves, but also the universe, help us to trust in you and your word in every aspect of our lives and guide us in our prayers each day. We pray today for the women of the church away for their weekend of special teaching and fellowship. Be with them as they finish up today. I pray that the new friendships formed will endure and that the truths of your word that have been shared and taught will be remembered and lived in their lives. Thank you for this time they've had away and we do pray keep them safe as they return home. Father, we pray also for the unity of your church, not just here but across the world, just as the Lord Jesus prayed that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I are in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe. Heavenly Father, help us to honour you and each other in the way we live, in our thoughts and in our speech. May we be courageous in our faith to seek to live at peace with each other and to speak the truth in love to each other. And if and when there is conflict or division, I pray that as followers of Jesus, we would prayerfully seek reconciliation and forgiveness. Father, give us wisdom and grace in all the relationships we have together here so that we can honour you in all ways and live in harmony with each other. We pray for our mission partner, Heal Africa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We pray especially for Dr. Joe Lucy, the founder of Heal Africa, who's been unwell, and ask that he would be healed quickly and completely. 
Please give the staff at Heal Africa Hospital strength, endurance, encouragement and protection while they serve on the front line in the pandemic. We also pray for the eastern provinces of the country where there continues to be increasing instability, violence and kidnappings. Pour down your peace and protection onto the people of this region, especially those who know you. And lastly, Lord, we pray for the upcoming elections and ask that all the local candidates in our area would conduct their um, promotion of their people in a fair and truthful campaign. We pray for ourselves as we prepare to vote, that you would help us to wisely weigh up the policies so that we can vote for leaders and parties who will allow your gospel to be promoted, who will govern with the interests of all Australians at their heart, especially the most vulnerable, and we pray protect us from being just self-interested or disinterested as we cast our votes. Thank you, for your, thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, and your love for each one of us. May we respond in turn by loving those around us, especially those who may be hard to love. And may we walk closely with you this week and find all our joy in knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing again. It's a wonderful hymn, O Worship the King, and that will be our offertory hymn. So if you give via the plate, now will be the time to have your offertory ready.
Please be seated. And we are, if I can just introduce the series, if you weren't with us two weeks ago, we're starting uh, a series in Romans. We did week one two weeks ago. We had Mother's Day last week, so we're coming back to it today. And the Bible reading picks up the second half of chapter one. If you want to get the Bibles out, it's chapter one, verse 16, through to the end of the chapter. And Larry's going to come read. Thanks, Larry. Yes, that reading's on page 1,126. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who was forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another, with other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they, so they so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, good morning, everyone. Hello. 
Uh, good to be here. Gee, these are challenging words for us, aren't they? So I'm going to pray and then we'll get right underway. You'll need to keep your Bibles open at Romans chapter 1 if you'd be so kind as to do that. Friends, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we, we find these words challenging and we ask that you would help us to apply our minds to them and also our hearts. We're told the greatest command is to love you with all of our hearts and all of our mind as well. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'll just need the uh, things flicked over to my slides if you can. Perfect. Well, I wonder how you view yourself as a human being. Sometimes I get the fellows in my growth group to score their week as if it were a school report card. Maybe they've had an A-plus kind of week, or perhaps it's been a C-minus kind of week, not that flash. But what if you were to give your life a score? How would you rate yourself? A wee while ago, they released results of a survey of kids in schools. Get this, 96% of students thought they were in the top 50% academically. 20% thought they were in the top 1% academically. Students always thought of themselves as better than they really were. And it's not limited to school students, is it? Our, our culture encourages us to think of ourselves as good through and through and mostly getting better. I mean, nobody's perfect, mind you, but we're mostly getting better, says our culture. But is that actually true? If you were to do a, a data dump, not only of your outward actions and words, but your internal thoughts and motives, would that prove accurate? Would you still give yourself an A minus? Well, the next three chapters of Romans will make an incisive argument that we're not good through and through and mostly getting better. We are all, whether we're irreligious to brave pagans, upright moral Gentiles or religiously devout Jews, we all fall short of God's glory. No matter which category you fall in, decadent and debauched, morally upright, probably uptight, or religiously devout, we are all in peril. But more importantly, I want to say this is reason to be hopeful. We will see today that humanity in its natural state faces the judgment of God and we are universally without excuse. So we're all stuffed. We've got no excuse. And yet there is reason to be optimistic. Well, how can this be? Friends, you'll have to listen in very carefully, won't you, to this second instalment in our series on Romans. The, the Apostle Paul's great explanation of the gospel, which he hoped would unify, unify the diverse Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. Well, let's get into things then. Firstly, we need to see that as a rule, humanity has suppressed the plain truth about God. The Apostle Paul, Jesus' official spokesperson, focuses here on irreligious, immoral, pagan depravity. In the next chapter, he will have upright Gentiles in mind. And the chapter after that, he will have religiously devout Jews in mind. All three groups are in a naturally perilous state before God. But specifically here today, pagan humanity has suppressed the plain truths about God. There is a plain truth suppressed, and that attracts the judgment of God. Well, let's read those opening verses together from verse 18, where the apostle says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. <laughs> okay, we'll just get straight to it then, shall we? 
Why is God angry? Why is his wrath being revealed? Well, Paul says, because godless people suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, what truth do we suppress? The truth that God is the creator of all things, which verse 19 says he has made plain to us. In fact, verse 20 makes it even plainer. God's invisible qualities like his power, his divinity, his eternity are obvious in the created world around us, but we naturally reject it and suppress it. Friends, just let those phrases in verses 19 and 20 pile up. God has made it plain. These have been clearly seen. It's understood from what has been made. People are without excuse. What should be an obvious opportunity to acknowledge that God is creator is rejected. And friends, I don't think there are many places where God's divine nature and power, eternal power, are more obvious than in Manly. Is that right? If you've ever watched the sun rise over South Stain, if you've ever swum or snorkeled across Cabbage Tree Bay, if you've ever sat out the back of the Bower or Winky or Dead Man's, the surf breaks just here, we know God. We know enough to know he's there. He's amazing. But humans suppress that truth, rejecting it, in a way that Paul says leaves us without excuse. We can't say we had no idea. But to make matters worse, there's not only a plain truth suppressed, there is also a godly glory exchanged. That is to say, we not only reject the truth that God is creator and we are his creatures and might have some responsibility towards him, we also exchange his glory in preference of worshipping idols created, perhaps by our own hands. There is a plain truth suppressed and then God's glory is exchanged. So let's read on verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In fact, verse 25 says it in a more succinct way. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. So we knew enough about God, but we rejected the truth about him. That doesn't make us any less a worshipping group. Because friends, we all worship something. They exchanged the worship of the eternal, divine, powerful, creator God for the worship of created things whether that was things their hands had made or the creation itself. They became idolaters and they leaned deeply into their idolatry. Of course, some 2,000 years later, we manly people would never be so stupid as to worship things made of stone and wood and paint and print, would we? I mean, we are obsessed about property. We would never be so basic as to lay down our devotion, orient our energies, give our great affections to material objects, would we? we? Can't let go of these things. Well, maybe, maybe not. But you have to admit that we still have a preference for worshipping created things. I mean, every time you hear somebody around here say something like, the ocean is my cathedral, or being in nature, that's my spiritual practice, well, friends, that's garden variety idolatry. 
It's suppressing the truth about God. It's exchanging his glory and it's worshipping created things, beautiful created things, rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. The sunrise, it is achingly beautiful, isn't it? And the blue gropers and the eagle rays and the cuttlefish in the bay. My wife, Carolyn, she loves the cuttlefish. I think it reminds her of me. <laughs> they're one, one, wonderfully beguiling, aren't they? But they're all created things rather than the creator, the one who deserves praise forever. And so we discover that the Apostle Paul in this chapter has zeroed in upon a surprising, surprisingly local phenomenon to us here in Manly. He's described our idolatry to a T. It's as if he's been staying at the backpackers just off the Corso. Unfortunately, our native idolatry, which we so readily swap our devotion and worship from our creator to created things, whether they're people, places, objects, it's not the only exchange that takes place. Quite a few Christmases ago, we bought, um, bought our son a remote-controlled helicopter for Christmas. Uh, and it looks like this, or it did. And after we charged up the batteries, it took a little time to get the hang of flying it, but once we did, we had a lot of fun with it. He had a lot of fun with it, and then I had a lot of fun with it after he went off to bed. At least for the first three days after Christmas, but then the battery stopped working. So we took it back to the toy store, and we explained what had happened, and they gave us another battery. And uh, we had some more fun with the helicopter for about the next three days until it stopped working again. And so for the second time, in the week after Christmas, we packaged up the helicopter, grabbed the receipt, and went back to the store. I didn't want another battery that would stop working in three days. I wanted a brand new helicopter or my money back. Now, I really don't like confrontation. I have to G myself up for it. So I'm preparing my arguments while I'm waiting in line. I'm about to be served, and I realise that I've subconsciously assumed the classic boxing stance. <laughs> Weight on my front foot, knee slightly bent, up on the ball of my back foot, poised to strike. What is with you, you idiot little man? We're in a toy store. I go to talk to the assistant, and straight away he gives me a choice of a refund or a replacement. There's no argument, there's no fight. It's totally unexpected. And as I was wondering why it was so easy, I looked behind the counter and I saw seven or eight of the exact same helicopters stacked in their boxes, one on top of the other, all of them broken. All of them broken. Every single one. And as we work our way through this passage, you would have picked up on, um, during the reading, the, the Apostle Paul will describe homosexual practice, not attraction or orientation per se, but homosexual practice as unnatural even shameful. I'm sure you heard it. It's something you, you're not even really allowed to utter out loud in our culture, and we will need to carefully consider those verses when we get to them. Mindful that this is the Word of God, even when we find it challenging, especially when we find it challenging. But before we get to those verses, we need to accept that as human beings, we are all like that stack of helicopters. All of us broken. Every single one. Sure, we're broken in our sexuality, whether that's heterosexual or homosexual, but even more, we're broken in our humanity, every single one of us. We've already considered the idolatry that the Apostle Paul first mentions. 
and we see it as a very modern, manly phenomenon. The second exchange involves immorality. And before he mentions homosexual immorality, he addresses heterosexual immorality in verses 24 and 26. So it would be important for you to read them. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God gave them over to what I presume he means is heterosexual shameful lusts there. So before we get to the verses that in our culture interest us, you know, scandalous, whatever, the apostle has laid a charge against heterosexual immorality. Any sexual activity, even fantasy, not shared between a man and a woman united in a lifelong covenant of marriage. That includes adultery in which a married spouse sleeps with someone to whom they're not married. It includes premarital sex where boyfriends and girlfriends are sleeping together, even if we're not talking about teenagers, but older, maturer folks. Uh, it includes pornography, any lustful fantasy outside the bonds of marriage, and even within the bonds of marriage, it could include the taking of sexual pleasure selfishly from a spouse or withholding intimacy from a spouse when it ought to be offered. You see, it all counts, doesn't it? And you remember it was the Lord Jesus himself who said, what you do in your mind matters as well as what you do with your body. And so I need us to notice that this passage is a general description about sinful humanity, right? It's not addressed to Christian believers. Paul's going to get there in the next two chapters. You will further notice in this passage there are no instructions, there are no commands for us. But of course, Christian people, you cannot read this passage without acknowledging there are behaviours and attitudes that displease God and incur his rightful wrath. Now, of course, I want every single person who comes to St. Matthew's to know they are created in God's image and are of precious worth to him. That's the most important thing, to know that you are made by God, loved by God. It's more important than knowing the Bible's sexual ethic. But knowing that you are loved by God and made by God, you cannot ignore his vision for sexual intimacy and faithfulness. So can I say respectfully, given that many of you are older than me, if you're engaged in heterosexual immorality, it needs to stop. And that might mean breaking off a relationship or moving out of the shared house or getting married or taking serious steps to control any fantasies in your mind and it might mean you need help to do that. Well, of course, we want to be a community that helps each other in these ways and loves one another deeply. Again, before we move on to the homosexual stuff for which Christians are often caricatured as being anti-gay, the Apostle Paul highlights a whole bunch of other behaviours that are contrary to God's will for our lives. It's not just that God doesn't tolerate gay sex or even heterosexual immorality, he's got a problem with so much of our human behaviour. Like in verse 29, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, he describes humanity there as full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. Is that not your experience of the world? As people slander one another, hate God, disobey their parents, invent ways of doing evil and are without understanding, love or mercy. Wow. What a chillingly accurate description of our world. And so we come to the part that um, you know, is of so much interest to us, what the passage says about homosexuality there in verses 26 and 27. And we've already seen the Bible does not treat homosexual practice as a worse kind of sin. It's not like he gives a whole pass to heterosexual immorality. 
that he discusses that both before and after he mentions homosexuality. Indeed, this passage does not depict um, any sinful practices, behaviours, as more sinister than a range of other sinful practices, behaviours and attitudes, including idolatry, envy, violence, greed, slander, arrogance, gossip. It all counts, he says. It all counts. Further, if you look closely, carefully, the Apostle in verses 26 and 27 mentions unnatural relations and indecent acts. That is, he appears to be zeroing in on homosexual practice in these verses when attractions are acted upon rather than orientation or attraction per se. And you might go, gee, what a technicality, Scott. Especially in our culture where there's great pressure to endorse just about everything. But that does reveal that folks with same-sex orientation are not outside the orbit of God's saving grace any more than any other group of people. It also means that we can support people who find themselves same-sex attracted and who want to follow Jesus not by endorsing every aspect of gay and lesbian lifestyle, not by trying to cure them in a strange way. Surely it's got to be about caring for such brothers and sisters rather than curing them. And I'm not saying it's simple, but I'm saying it's not impossible to embrace such folks. And there might be some of you here this morning in a way that is both coherent and compassionate, that is neither mean nor dumb, that stays true to the Bible's vision for sexual intimacy. I'm not saying it's simple, I'm just saying it's not impossible, and it's certainly more nuanced than a three-word slogan like love is love or just say no. I'm not saying the Christian church has always been terrific at doing this, at embracing and supporting these brothers and sisters, we certainly haven't, but I am saying it's possible. And uh, though there's plenty more to say, um, that really is all the time we can give to it right now. Nevertheless, folks, I, I don't think you can read the Bible or even this passage without concluding that God is not okay with homosexual practice. He describes it as unnatural, that is, against his created order of things. And whilst some people, perhaps people in this congregation, might find the whole idea of homosexual sex to be scandalous, you would know that the real scandal in our culture, and perhaps also amongst the younger members of our fellowship, is to criticise homosexuality in any way. To say anything negative really is the cardinal vice in our culture. And so these words are very challenging for us to hear and accept. Just as the description of heterosexual immorality should be very challenging for us to hear and accept. Just as the description of the vast range of vices here should be very challenging for us to hear and accept. It all counts. It's all serious. It all incurs the judgment of God. And in fact, one of the surprises <coughs> in this passage is not, only that, <coughs> me, is not only the rejection of God and our native depravity incurs a final judgment. The surprise is that a present judgment is issued. A present judgment is issued. Way down in verse 32, if you have a look at it, Paul hints at the idea of a final judgment by saying, all those who practice all the evil he's just described deserve death. The surprising focus in this passage is the present judgment. Did you notice that? Verse 18, it talks in the present tense about God's judgment being revealed from heaven. In other words, it's happening now. And you think, well, how can that be, Scott? I don't see flashes of fire from heaven. Thank you, Larry. I hope that's for me. Thank you, brother. Ah. 
Larry McKittrick, what a servant. How can that be? We don't see flashes of fire from heaven. We don't see people getting zapped on the streets. Well, the clue is in the repetition of the phrases, God gave them over. You can see them there in verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to depraved minds. And so you wonder, how is that God's judgment? Well, it's because when God leaves us to our own devices and removes his favour from our lives at our request, we only move further from his grace. We only embed ourselves in our rejection of his truth. We suffer the consequences of our own wrongdoing, which is punishing in and of itself. And we grow deafer and deafer to his call to come back to him. And the hope of salvation grows ever fainter. When God gives humans over to themselves at our request, to our sinful hearts, our shameful lusts, our depraved minds, that is a devastating scenario. It is present judgment indeed. We suffer the consequence of human wrongdoing without rescue, the hope of being restored into right relationship with God and being the objects of his mercy fades away. It's present judgment indeed that points to a final one. Have you ever, let's say accidentally, flicked over to one of those random free-to-air channels like Channel 72 or 93 and they have kind of TV home shopping on. Have you ever done that, made that mistake? You know, there's fat-free air fryers and um, wonder steam cleaners that are going to solve all your worldly problems. And the commercials go for about 20 minutes. Well, the other day, I, I landed on one of those channels and they were flocking this exercise bike, right, that also had resistance bands built in. So you could do these kind of upper body exercises while your legs were kind of whizzing away down low. And they have these kind of remarkably good-looking fit, ripped and tanned people using the machine whilst the salesman rambles on about it. And I was <laughs> looking at it and I thought, you look very fit. But you didn't get fit on that machine. <laughs> and I can tell that because you haven't broken a sweat. You haven't run out of breath. You haven't stopped smiling your perfect white smile for the whole 20 minutes on this thing. It's a false hope entirely. Now, did I, did I give you false hope when I started here? Verses 18 to 32 is, is a description of depraved humanity in general, the pagan world, if you like. It does refer to they and to them, kind of out there, but I included all of us with them, lumping us all together as one immoral, irreligious human conglomerate, because it just sounds less judgy. And Nathan is going to show us next week that even if our school report card looks pretty good, compared to the description in verses 18 to 32, if we would sort of give ourselves an A minus, probably isn't that good. So we have no room for being judgmental. I mean, after all, it's God's job to judge and he will be thorough and just. But I did start today using words like hopeful and optimistic. Where is the hope and the optimism in verses 18 to 32, in that gloomy description of idolatry, immorality and judgment? Well, friends, it's at the very beginning, isn't it? where you see a gospel hope revealed. Let's read those beautiful, wonderful verses together, verses 16 and 17, where the apostle says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Very gloomy when you read verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. Except that the verse immediately beforehand has reminded us that the righteousness of God is also revealed. Not in human behaviour, where we might scratch our way up to, I don't know, like a B plus or something. But in the gospel of his son, the gospel, that good news about Jesus, brings salvation from judgment. That gospel is accessed by faith or belief from first to last. In other words, it always has been accessed by faith. And that salvation is available to everyone who believes. The gospel brings salvation to everyone who believes, whether that's the religious Jew in chapter 3, the morally upright Gentile in chapter 2, the depraved Australian, this chapter. It's available to everyone who believes. The idolater out the back of South Stain, the greedy person, the gossip, the slanderer, the heterosexually immoral, the homosexually immoral, the one who invents ways of doing evil, and the one who encourages others to do the same. And so whatever your background, whatever your backstory, the gospel that centers on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is optimistic because it is available to everyone who believes. It will challenge, it will shape, it will change you, no doubt, but it will also save everyone who believes. And so, friends, if you haven't believed it, can I ask you to apply your heart and your mind to study it with us? And if you have Christian people, the answer is not to judge the people of the world in their idolatry and immorality. I mean, we are no better. The answer is to share Paul's confidence in the gospel, to repeat after him, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. God has made himself clear in creation. But we universally reject that testimony and worship created things instead. We add immorality to our idolatry and we invent ways of doing evil. We might think our scorecard is an A minus, but it's a glowing red F. We want nothing to do with God. And when he gives us what we want, it goes even worse for us. But he cannot help himself, can he? Cannot help himself. And he cannot leave us without hope, without a lifeline without a witness to himself, without the prospect of rescue. And so, friends, join with the Apostle Paul in saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let's pray together as we finish. Heavenly Father God, Help us to say along with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And where we can't, give us the courage to share in his confidence. Heavenly Father, where there are idols that are jostling for position with my creator in my heart and life, help me to identify these things. Loving Lord, where there are places where I am envious, slanderous, deceitful and lustful, I repent of those things. Help me to love and live differently because I worship and serve my creator rather than good created things. And finally, we praise you 
for the gospel of your Son that brings salvation for all who believe. In Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we're going to sing another human response. Let's sing. seems to have died we're going to press ahead um, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together and we can do that without a projector uh, we have got our disposable COVID free communion packs so if you've got those there if you'd like to open them up now that would be a great thing and if you're at home and if you'd like to get some bread and juice out that'd be terrific Let me commence this part of the service. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we who come to receive the Holy Communion of the body and blood of our Saviour Christ can come only because of his great love for us. For although we are completely undeserving of his love, as we've heard this morning, 
Yet in order to raise us from the darkness of death to everlasting life as God's sons and daughters, our Saviour Christ humbled himself to share our life and to die for us on the cross. In remembrance of his death and as a pledge of his love, he has instituted this holy sacrament, which we are now to share. But those who would eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord must examine themselves and amend their lives. They must come with a penitent heart and steadfast faith. Above all, they must give thanks to God for his love towards us in Christ Jesus. Uh, there is a prayer of confession that was to appear on the screen. I'm going to pray it, and if you know the words, uh, pray along with me. Merciful Father, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the schemes and desires of our own hearts and have broken your holy laws. We have left undone what we ought to have done, and we have done what we ought not to have done. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. Restore those who are penitent according to the promises declared to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that from now on we may live a godly and obedient life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. There are some great words of reassurance all through Scripture about those who come with a penitent heart. Here is one from Romans 8, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus you have been set free from the law of sin and death. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that in your love and mercy you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to save us, by his offering of himself once and for all time, Jesus made the perfect, complete sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, satisfying your just demands in full. And he commanded us to remember his death until his coming. Merciful Father, grant that we who eat and drink this bread and wine may remember his death and share in his body and blood. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread into his hands and he gave you thanks and he broke it. And then he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat this in remembrance of my body which is broken for you. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup in his hands and he gave thanks saying, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So friends, let's take the bread, which you've got your little um, wafer there. Take that and eat and remember Christ's body was broken for us so that we might live. Take the cup and drink and remember Christ's blood was shed for our sins and be thankful. I'm going to pray this prayer of thanksgiving. Lord and Heavenly Father, in your loving kindness, accept our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Grant that by the merits and death of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and your whole church may receive forgiveness of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. With gratitude for all your mercies, 
we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Amen. It's been great to be with you today. Uh, there is morning tea over in the function room and I would invite everyone who is here to come and join us, particularly those who are new. Let me conclude with the words of the benediction. May the God of peace who passes all understanding keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst us and remain with us always. Amen. <laughs>